0: Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our
1: relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Revelation 14, 14. And the last time the message was titled, Anticipation, and we, you can almost take that theme today, too, because we didn't finish, for the sake of time, we didn't finish chapter 14. Um, Revelation 14 and some of 15 is also anticipatory. In other words, you see what's going on. God gives a glimpse into what's going on in heaven but the actual ramifications of God's decisions haven't taken place yet. Uh, today, the title is really the consequences or the results of the two paths. Uh, and Jesus said, you know, in America, you go to shop for bread, and I hate going shopping because there's just so much to choose from. Poor, poor us, right, in the United States. Um, So there's a lot of choices in in our nation, and we get used to that. But Jesus basically said there's only two paths that human beings can take. You're on the right path, which is the narrow path, where few find leads to everlasting life, or you're on the wide path, right? The path that most people find, unfortunately, and it leads to destruction. So what we're going to see this morning is it's in in the Earth's future. Um, I really strongly believe that at this point, This is history before it happens. The church is removed, okay, for good reasons. Uh, The earth just starts to implode. God is uh, largely rejected from society. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, has been pushed out. There's a lack of peace in not only American culture, but around the world. We're seeing seeing that today, and everything just starts to implode. Secular humanism isn't solving humans' problems, and, you know, God has to do something here. Right, And I find it interesting that I have a lot of friends who are either agnostic or atheists. And I have this one friend. He's always texting me. I'm like, dude, you, you he texts me to, to be antagonistic. I'm like, you really must want me to convince you that God exists. Like, he's always bringing it up, not me. I'm completely honest. My wife says, who's that? I'm like, oh, it's him again. He's texting me with another video. But I watch all of his videos and stuff, and I'm like, bro, if you're going to make a case against God, you, you really need a little bit more ammunition than that before you pass away. Uh, so, you know, you, you have this situation where there's these two paths, and um, there's the ramifications to the two paths, but people do this a lot. They say one of the complaints about God is that, you know, look at war, look at poverty, look at all these things. And I say my response is that God gave a beautiful creation, really with enough ability to grow all the food uh, 50 times over for the planet— you know, there's corrupt governments, there's war, there's uh, fascist leaders that rise up. And we have a responsibility as human beings to tend this gift that God has given us. So people say, we want justice. We want judgment. And then I read the scripture where God is meeting out justice and judgment. And people go, oh, that's so, how could a loving God do that? Listen, folks, you can do that with politicians. You cannot do that with the living God you know it's these false binary choices it's it's a crazy culture that we find ourselves in you know god needs to in, in, institute justice he's he's lagging he's delaying and here is the time where he actually does it and people will still read this and go i have a problem with that Yeah, but aren't you the same one that said you wanted justice? What is your issue with the way God is doing this? So we're going to jump in. And um, again, I'm not a spokesperson for God. I don't need to defend God. He didn't assign me his PR person. But to me, it's just common sense. So let's jump in with um, 1414. And I looked and behold, a white cloud. So this is the Apostle John. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and, his hand, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat, who sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So one, we're going to look at this in four parts, one out of four is Last Sunday, we were in the image of the cup, right? It was a metaphor. It was a picture of something. Uh, This Sunday, or at this portion of Scripture, we're looking at the image of the harvest. And again, God—now, you have to remember, at the time, a large majority of the people, the population, were not educated. So God, whether it was the Old Testament or the New Testament—I love the way he does this—regardless of your education level, he would use metaphors. So even the, the, the uneducated could understand, because a lot of them were farmers. They, they were in an agrarian society. But also the highly educated could understand the metaphors too. That's what I love about God. He's, he's fair all around. Um, and I have to kind of preface this with, the, with Matthew 13, the, the um, parable of the wheat and the tares, where the, the wheat grows. And again, that's a metaphor for people who know the Lord, who turn to God at some point, and the wheat grows in the field, but also the tares grow as well. And the Lord says, Don't, to, to the the angels and, and those that are uh, doing the harvest, you know, do you want us to rip out those tares? They're the evil, they're the wicked. And because they look very similar. And the Lord basically says, Wait until the harvest time, let them grow together. Then we'll separate the wheat from the tares. Now, the wheat, which is those that have not, those that have submitted to God, that have repented, they've turned to the living God. They will be harvested for good things, right? Farming, community, farming, example. But the tares, unfortunately, would be harvested for judgment, and we're going to look at that. So there's a lot to this. The Son of Man. Um, there's a lot of symbolism here. If you, if you like the church, but you're new to it, go back to the website for free. You can get Revelation one all the way to where we are because we're building up. We've already built up a foundation of symbols metaphors, um, personifications, right? These are all have already been built up in our cache of our understanding of these 14 chapters. So I'm going to go through them briefly. The son of man is the, obviously, uh, the post-ascended Jesus Christ, the golden crown he's wearing. Well, he is the King of Kings and he does win the battle between good and evil. And again, the sharp sickle is a farming illustration. Verse 15, the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is a future occurrence. Now, I like to, every once in a while, peruse the Greek lexicon and look at each Greek word and say, am I missing something? Is there more of an understanding to this? When I went into my Greek lexicon and I looked at the word ripe, there's a lot of synonyms there. So, you know, you think tomatoes, I love tomatoes. (laughs) I love fruit in general. You know, you see the tomatoes and thank you for your garden. think your green tomatoes are starting to turn red. I appreciate that. Uh, And just looking them on the windowsill and I'm like, all right, it's a little soft. It's red. I'm going to sink my teeth into this guy. So ripe is a good thing. But ripe here is the synonyms are shrivel, mature, withered. This is a a situation where the time has come for the Lord to judge the earth because there's a spiritual rotting taking place. Okay, again, this is our future. We don't know if it's two years from now, five years, 10 years. False teachers set dates and times. We do not do that. The Lord said it is up to him. When, When he's ready, we'll know it. But this is a future occurrence. Verse 16, this is also anticipatory from where we're standing right now and also where when we actually read the scripture, when John, when, when this actual thing is taking place, it's also anticipatory. The Lord is ready to do it, but He gives a, an indication, a hint to what He's doing in the heavenlies, what He ends up doing, um, consequently on the earth. Right? But here's the question: We can get into all this stuff and symbols and even debate things, but are we the wheat or are we the tares? Are we the weeder or are we the tares? you know what's amazing about that parable is, and I believe this, it's my opinion, that the Lord waits till harvest because something that might start out as a tear may turn to something good. I love that. Because if the Lord took, if I died at 21, 22, 23, I would have faced judgment because I did not know the Lord. I'm glad that the Lord gave me a few extra years, which made all the difference in the world. So that's why I, am, I try to be gracious, because I look at what the Lord did with me, and I want that for everybody. You know? So you, know, you could be in, in that formative period in your spirituality. You're searching. You're not sure. You came here with a friend or a loved one. But eventually, you need to become part of the wheat, part of that good harvest. Is your spiritual fruit good or bad? Or is it dormant right now? Is it dormant? Hopefully it will turn good, right? Again, just the formative time that you're taking this in right now. The choice is yours. What path are you on? Are you on the wrong path? Are you on the wrong path? I was on the wrong path, and then I went onto the right path, the proper path. Again, Lord, thank you for that time. I appreciate that. Maybe somebody today will make the decision to move to the, the proper path because they are on the wrong path. Verse 17, continuing on. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. There's a lot of sickles going on here, you know. <laughs> there must be a big um, shed in heaven with all these sharp sickles that everybody's taken one, right? Called arms, verse 18. And another angel came out of the altar, from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And we're gonna talk about what that means. So two out of four this morning is the harvest judgment. So I wanna digress a little bit, and almost every culture has a, do you realize this? Almost every culture has a grim reaper type of figure, a personification of death. Now I'm dating myself, but when I was young, I listened to a lot of rock and roll, some of you are going to smile. One of the bands I listened to was Blue Oyster Cult, which I don't think they've made anything in a while. But one of their famous songs was songs were "Don't Fear the Reaper," and they're still using that song today in movies. "Don't Fear the Reaper." All right, we're going to stop there. <laughs> but when I read about, and I like to do this, I like to I like culture, I like American culture, and I started reading about why they wrote that song, and that was a way for them. To assuage their fears about death, don't fear the reaper. Uh, be careful with that one. You know, I'm just going to go on with my life and just not consider eternity. And I die, and well, there's no do-overs. So Blue Oyster Cult wrote that song. Um, Greek and Roman mythology had a grim reaper type figure. Probably a misunderstanding between some in the Judeo-Christian culture have this picture of the, the skeleton, right, with the with the hood. And the sickle, and he comes to take people. And the, the skeleton is, um, he's, a, he's a sort of a personification, but he's a skeleton. So, you know, we, we don't really understand him as a person. But we have to go back to what the scripture says, right? Everything that the Bible says predates culture. Even in the Old Testament, the image of the harvest and the image of uh, the Lord uh, saying that the harvest was ripe. The image of judgment coming. All right, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament that predates these cultures. So this is the correct interpretation, the correct understanding of what judgment looks like. So some of you might be going, gee, I I didn't, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, you you rock and roll and you, you see a lot of images of the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper doesn't exist, folks. This is a time where the angels and the Lord himself are going to say, The fruit is overripe. We have to harvest. We can't let mankind go on like this forever. Okay? So let's jump into two, the harvest judgment. There's also um, a a vision or a picture or a precursor, an understanding of the battle of Armageddon. We're going to cover that in later chapter. So I'm just going to touch on it because I don't want to say the same thing twice. Um, The vine and the wine press. In, In agrarian culture... Uh, And today you can see, you know, it's really cool to just, you read the Bible, you read especially Jesus' metaphors in the spring and summer. Go visit a local farm. Buy some local honey. It's good for allergies. But um, just check out the farm, the equipment, and what they do. And and if you see people doing things in a field, just stop and just kind of watch it. It's very neat. It kind of fills us in more of an understanding of what these simple metaphors were from this culture. So the wine, the vine and the wine press. And Let's just say this for, from a farming perspective is, you, you know, the, the grapes are, they're ready to be harvested. You, you gather up the vines, you separate the grapes from the vine, you put them in the wine press and, you know, um, they didn't have electricity back then. And they usually had some type of turn screw uh, handle and the thing would go further down and down and it would squish the grapes Yes, I know in some cultures, they they squash the grapes with their feet. It probably adds added flavor. Uh, But the bottom line is, sorry, you know, hey, listen, if you go overseas, you might get some feet in your grapes and your wine. Just letting you know, just a little bit of warning. And then the the juice would uh, ferment and you would get wine. However, this metaphor was for the people to understand that judgment was coming. The wine press wasn't a nice thing at some little local farm. It was the wine press of the wrath of God, uh, because of the corruptness of what the earth had become. And it's funny, I speak in the past, but it's actually in the future. A little difficult from a human perspective. Uh, in the Old Testament, God spoke about Israel at times as being that corrupt vine. At times, at times she did really good. She was repenting. At other times, she was corrupt in in the politicians and the prophets and stuff. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus is seen as the good vine, that we're supposed to get our life as believers, as spiritual people, from that good vine. We have to be tied into him. So this vine image is, is pretty powerful, and here, unfortunately, it's, it's the earth that's largely, largely rejected God, and it's the corrupt uh, bad vine of the earth. Now, again, <laughs> this is warning after warning after warning after warning, Right? There's just a lot of warnings here. Verse 20, it says that the blood was up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs, which could, which could be close to 200 miles, depending on uh, ancient measurements back then. Now, and then I just love when people do this. They look at the Bible and they say, that's anachronistic. You know, that... Illustration we would never use in modern warfare. And, and I love this. I love when people kind of do this. And Pastor Joe, you know, the Battle of Armageddon is going to be mechanized. There's going to be jets. Going to, yeah, sure there are. Did you know, I did a little research on this. Did you know, because people will say nobody would use a horse in modern warfare. And if you ask that question, I'm glad you asked it. In World War II, when we tally up the Axis and the Allies, now remember, tanks were a big thing. Uh, The Germans had developed jet technology, you know, there were um, the bombs and and, and nuclear uh, fission was was developed. So we were in the modern age in World War II. Do you realize that both the Axis and the Allies collectively used 8 million horses in warfare? Is that surprising to some of you? Modernized war? Yeah, I see some faces. Okay. Why? Because horses can get to places that tanks and planes cannot get to. They can go up mountains. They don't need gasoline, right? They can, as they're walking, you let them tread the ground and the vegetation. And they keep working for you. Um, And there's a lot of different reasons why horses are used. So let me just dispel that concern that people may have that the Bible is not real. And I do this oftentimes. It's called apologetics. The blood was up to the horse's bridle. And again, when you look at the Battle of Armageddon, there's a tell and there's also a valley. There is some... Uh, Highs and lows, so to speak, in this great battle, which is geographically in Israel that's going to take place. So, when you look at how many, possibly millions of soldiers, may be from all over the world coming to do battle this, really this final battle, uh, it's not hard to understand with the bodies and the pooling and the blood and the splashing that it would, at some places, especially in the low areas, it would be up to the horse's bridle. Not hard to understand. Check this out. 1,600 furlongs or close to 200 miles. When you go to this area in Israel, which is north of Jerusalem, which this battle is understood to take place, check this out. If you, if you go into a, a radius, right, a radius from where the place is, the battle, and you go into a radius of 200 miles, what you find is the following countries. Think of Ezekiel 38 and 39. You touch Syria. You encompass Syria. Syria today has elements of the Russian army and the Iranian army because Russia and Iran are also part of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So this is amazing how these prophecies thousands of years ago are coming true. You have Lebanon, you have Jordan, we talked about the rock city Petra, you have Egypt, you have the Arabian Peninsula, and again, these, all these places in this radius are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, I'm going to, I'm just going to wet your appetite a little bit, but I'm going to cover it more when we get to those uh, chapters. But in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19, we see more of this this great battle. Now it's very interesting to know to note that. Uh, so and again, let's. Because people, right away, it's just the culture we live in. I can't wait till November 4th so everybody can calm down again. If I'm teaching the Bible, I have to teach the Bible. And I have to touch on things that, that are going on today. Um, Sudan was one of the newest countries that are in the, the peace treaty with Israel. So you had United Arab Emirates, which is on the uh, Arabian Peninsula. You have Bahrain. You have Saudi Arabia. These are all on the, the Arabian Peninsula. They're mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and you have Sudan. So what you're going to find is if this continues in this vein with these peace treaties with Israel, you're already going to see there's not one country left out of the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39. That is fascinating. It's fascinating, right? So the media, they have their reasons to make a big deal or suppress it. But I look for these things because it, it fits right into Bible prophecy. And when all the prophecies are fulfilled where nothing else needs to happen, that's a really exciting time. And, you know, Pastor Vinny follows uh, overseas uh, Christian teachings and stuff. and you know, he fills me in and like, he says to me, I listened to your message, what you taught. And I heard this other pastor in Israel teach the same exact message with the same exact connecting points. So there's something going on in the church. I don't mean our church. I mean, the church collectively throughout the world. If you're really studying and some churches are out to lunch. Okay. But if you're studying the Bible, we all, no matter where we are, I may never hear that guy's sermon. You know, in Russia, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, we're all saying the same things. Time's getting short. So let's continue. The blood, okay, let's move on from that. Um, listen, and again, my my point to you too is, or my question to you is, if a church, and you, you're seeing the church today scramble for relevancy, you're seeing pastors clamoring for microphones and saying things to jump on bandwagons, or to say something against some of the cultural things that are happening in our country. But I think that what we need to do as pastors is, the Bible says, to feed the flock of God. And it says those that are in front of you, whether you're on TV or you're physically here. So these are things that we need to do. What does it say of a church that is striving for relevancy and they purposely will never teach revelation, will never teach judgment, blood, hell, sin, because they don't want to offend, offend anybody. I think that's cruel. If I go to the doctor and I have a mass in my abdomen, or I'm going for that surgery, and he sees that doesn't look good, and it's, it's got these, these tentacles that are touching some of his other organs, you know what? I don't want to hurt his feelings. Let me just close him back up and say, hey, the surgery went well, and send him home that doctor could be sued for malpractice or even end up in jail depending on how much evidence there was that he knew there was something a disease or some type of serious thing but he just wants to send me on my way and let me enjoy the next two or three years and then I'm dead listen if we're a church we have to be studying the word of God we have to be if we're Christians we have to be studying the word of God So to me, if a church tries to, and I see these churches, they don't want to offend people. You know, everyone's triggered today. I get it. It's the culture. Listen, we have to teach the truth because maybe that'll open some eyes and they, in the back of their mind, they, in the front of their mind, they're in their frontal lobe, they're offended. But somewhere in the subconscious, they say to themselves, you know what? I should look into this. What if this is true? And they get saved. Amen. So you got to look at the big picture. My desire is for everyone to be saved. That's just my desire. Even if people get offended and turn off the live stream, which happens sometimes, and that's okay. We have to be faithful to the Lord. 15. There's only a few verses in 15. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, And over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested Three out of four is victory for the tribulation saints. Now, if you're new to the scripture, we spoke the last few Sundays about the mark of the beast and what it looks like and the infrastructure that's being set up, the, the geopolitical, not Republican and Democrat, the geopolitical climate that's setting up this this seat for this, this global leader who's very charismatic. We talked about all that. But there are going to be people because he's going to be vehemently against anything that resembles God. He will persecute Jews. He will persecute Christians. It was, this, was, this happened in the late uh, 1930s. We think like we're past that. And there's a persecuted church as we speak. There are people who are being persecuted for being Christians and Jews overseas. If we just look at American media, we, we won't know that, but that is actually taking place. So this stuff isn't far-fetched. It's happening except in the United States so far. (laughs) So three is the victory for the tribulation saints. These people that go through this very dark time in the earth's future, that there's um, persecution uh, sanctioned by the state and it'll be a global state and it'll trickle down to nations and and federal and state and local, etc. And there may be laws that are passed that persecute um, Christians and Jews, right? But what we see is that the seven angels have these seven bowls or seven vials. These, you know, it's probably not Tupperware. It's probably something really neat uh, containing the seven last plagues. And we're going to get to that in chapter 16, where they pour it out on the earth. And then we see what comes out of these bowls or these vials. And again, let's look at these contrasted paths and the results. So you've got seven angels ready to get, be given the signal to implement judgment on the earth. But they're standing by. They're paused while the tribulation saints are honored for standing fast and resisting the world system that tried to get them to disbelieve in Jesus Christ. So you got two contrasted paths happening at the same time. There's something going on in heaven for those that have taken the narrow path, and it was a hard road, a very hard road. And then you have something happening on the earth for those that took the wide path, took the easy way out, took the comfortable way out, and they're going to be judged because of what they did. They took the mark of the beast. They worshipped him. And, and it's not going to be pretty. Verse 2. I, and I just picked these things out because I could just imagine uh, the Apostle John writing this stuff down. And he's doing the best he can. You know, you see things of heaven. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. He was taken up to the third heaven and he, he saw and heard things that, that were inexpressible. John, at least try to write down what he saw, saw. Paul, the apostle Paul was like, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And it's hard for me to write down what I saw in heaven. So verse two, there's a sea of glass mingled with fire. I'm going to say that it's probably very beautiful. If you're a believer, if you um, have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you die in the Lord and you see things in heaven... Even instruments of God's judgment that he eventually has to mete out, it's not for you. So what you just get to see is the beauty. Imagine something transparent, translucent. It, it's, it looks like a sea of, of, of glass that sparkles with, with with fire. must have been gorgeous. But the saints, they, were, they went through enough fire on the earth that mankind had perpetrated on them. They go up to heaven and they, they're standing on this sea. I wonder if I'd be like whoa, wow, whoa, look at that. I mean, I've seen some nice floors, but this is going to just knock all those things out of the park. Uh, so, yeah, so the tribulation saints are perfectly safe. Um, they're honored. They're um, greeted. They're given harps. They're told to rest. And, and we've seen this in, in uh, Revelation 7. We covered some of this, right? We talked about groupings. Um, but, again, it's, it's two different ways to meet a warrior, God is a holy God. God is a just God. God is a righteous God. God is a fair God. God is also a patient God and a loving God. And, and he waits and he waits and he waits for people to change their ways. And he sends um, scripture. He sends preachers. He sends people to evangelize them. And his desire, the Bible says, is for the whole world to, to be saved. But, you know, do you realize that each person Every person that has ever, God has ever created that's on this planet, and again, I, I went to the statistics, we're right around 7.8 billion people on the planet. He gave them something so powerful. He gave us free will. He also gave us the ability to either choose him or reject him. Isn't that amazing? He creates us. He gives us a mind, a brain, a body. He puts us on this beautiful planet. Even in his fallen state, it's gorgeous, and he sets us free. He tries to woo us back to him. But again, we make that decision or not. So I think of the warrior who goes out to war and he's got his dragon scales on and he's got his, his high-powered rifles and his helmet and his walkie-talkie. And, you know, he, go, and he does battle to protect the, the innocent. Uh, and the people who can't protect themselves. And then he comes home and his kid runs up to him and says, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And, and his little girl, um, you know, he's taken off the helmet, his dragon scale, uh, you know, bullet resistant uh, you know, armor. He takes off and he, he puts his firearms away and he, he, he makes them safe. And his little girl, all she sees is Daddy. But the bad guys, the terrorists see, they fear him. And this is who God is. He is totally just. He is totally awesome. He's totally a warrior. But he's also, to those who have repented and have trusted in him, he is daddy. Amen? Abba, father, daddy. You can't get more of a a term of endearment than that. Or mommy, right? When it comes to your mom. Okay, so we continue on. So the tribulation saints had victory over the beast, the mark, the number. Uh, but wait a minute! When they were on the earth, they were many of them were probably murdered, imprisoned, starved, because they wouldn't take the mark. Um, you know, sometimes even Christians can have vastly different ideas of what a hero is, or somebody who's victorious, than what American culture thinks. I love this country. I'm very patriotic, but we have some things that we we in the church have to separate the American dream and our rights, and what we want, and our goals from what does the Bible say. We can't conflate them. They're two different things. Sometimes they overlap, which is nice, and sometimes they don't. So they, many of these people who are in heaven, they, they're given the harps, and they're standing on the sea of glass mingled with fire. They lost battles. They were beaten. They were tortured. They were on the earth begging God for it to end. You know, when, when we see, and, and I say the culture, when the culture sees somebody lose, what's the term that we think of? It's a term that was coined. It's not a legitimate term. It started with vernacular. It's called loser, right? You failed. You're a loser. And that's not what the Bible says. I want to read to you um, <clears throat> the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. And then let's apply it to the tribulation saints. And then let's apply it to ourselves. Hebrews eleven thirty-two through 40, the author is writing to Hebrew believers and encouraging them because they're going through persecution. And he speaks about Moses and, you know, Joshua and all these awesome heroes of faith, Rahab, right? 32, it says, what more shall I say? Well, let's start with 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Just so you know, all those people had serious blunders in their lives. I can go through each one for you if you wanted me to but they were considered heroes of faith because they had faith in the living God over their own abilities, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. How many of David's kids tried to kill him and depose him, right? How many of them died tragically? King David. A lot of it was the consequences of his own actions, but, but God still looked at him as a hero of faith because even through all his blunders, he always trusted the Lord. So what's your problem this morning? What do you think that you can't be forgiven for, or God can't use you? Put it out of your mind. It says, Through faith they subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness, were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Let's, let's go to the second part of the group of people who were heroes of faith. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, tormented of whom the world was not worthy. Isn't that amazing? God says, the world says, you guys are a bunch of losers. Just deny your fairy tale God and we'll accept you and we'll stop. No. So the world says, you guys are a bunch of losers. But what does God say? That they're heroes. He says, that world that you lived in, that they treated you like that, that world wasn't worthy of you. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should be made perfect apart from us. That's powerful. And I hope this morning that that ministers to you. So I read the statistics of overdoses. I read the statistics of suicides, of suicidal ideations. Well, I gave you a general. I didn't give you the numbers, but they're available And you could be watching. You could be here. You could come in here with a burden, an emotional burden. And you might think, you might have said it this past week, I'm a loser. Nobody would want me. God couldn't use me. I don't even know why. And I've heard people say this. It took all of what I had to come to church this morning. Are you unemployed? Are you sick? We have some saints in this church that so desperately want to come here. But they can't. They can't be around other people. They have compromised immune systems. They're going through cancer treatment. They're going through treatment for tumors that are benign but invading parts of the brain. Um, have you been abused? I just had somebody come to me this morning and ask me to pray for a, a, a situation with a, with a separation. Emotional issues. Did you just go see your doctor and he refilled your prescription, and you, and you tend to look at the mirror in the mirror, and, and you're disgusted what, by what you see. Listen, I'm just being honest here. We've all gone through those at different. And you know what? When we go through those lonely and and desolate times, sometimes we think that we're the only one. (laughs) Facebook is terrible. You go on Facebook and all your friends, life is wonderful, but you're falling apart. Don't be surprised how many of your friends on social media are also going through it. And we put up this facade to other people that, oh, everything's great, instead of being honest with each other and reaching out for help. How many people have taken their lives? And I I say this as an appeal to anybody who's struggling with suicide please talk to somebody, call us, call the suicide hotline, talk to your friends, talk to your loved ones. You will be missed. And you don't think it right now, but you will be. Folks, you know what's amazing? God would prefer, and this is from our perspective, he would prefer to use people that think they're losers than people that think that they're all that in a bag of chips. I'm just being honest with you. That's the way he operates. When we have too much pride, we get in the way of what he's trying to do in us. I've been there. I've been in both sides. And I've noticed that when I just humble myself, the Lord's like, all right, you just opened the door. You opened that door for me to work greatly and mightily through your life. Amen. So, seriously, if I got to stay here after service, if you got a burden, come talk to somebody. Ask somebody to pray with you. You're struggling with something. Maybe you're struggling with doing something that you probably shouldn't do. And you just need somebody to to hold your hand and pray with you and say, I'm here for you. You know, you want to tell somebody because you don't want to do it. Yeah, amen. You know, when we struggle with life, we think wrong. Our emotions get the best of us, but again, you look at every one of these heroes of faith. Look at every name, and I'll tell you something that they did that was a burden to them, but God still used them in spite of that. Verses three and four: the song of Moses. Now we see a song of Moses in Exodus fifteen. We see, you know, Moses; the children of Israel are delivered, and it's so cool. Um, in in the Old Testament, specifically, you also see instances in the New Testament where they would put what God did for them in song and they would memorize it, right? And they would put it to music and in difficult times, they would sing it and it would just remind them of who God is and what he's done for them. So you see this in Exodus 15, you see this in Deuteronomy 32, um, you see this, you see a mixture of what God had done for them, but you also see the King of Kings and you see the new covenant, theology in this Song of Moses. It's short, and sweet, but it's very powerful. The children of Israel had to trust God through Egypt. Here, the tribulation saints have to trust God through the tribulation with one stark difference. The children of Israel were literally saved from death. They went through the Red Sea. You know, the Red Sea came down on Pharaoh's army. The tribulation saints were saved from spiritual death, Unfortunately, they died in this world, but God, you know, opens up the heaven and he makes them comfortable and and they get their new uh, garments that have representations to it. Uh, They're given a song to sing of their deliverance, right? Regardless of what happens in this life, if we're in Christ, we are winners. And eventually that will be apparent. Some of us have a harder walk than most others, but this life really is short. You know, I remember stuff that happened when I was six years old. It's almost like it was yesterday. I have a pretty good memory. And I just turned 53. Ugh, how did this happen? So life goes really fast, folks, and it's eternity that matters. Where's George Washington been for a few centuries? Where's Nero been for a few millennia? Let's go back to where's Moses been, right? Right. (laughs) <laughs> a lot longer than they 've ever lived on on their, in the physical world, verse five through eight finishing up after these things, I looked and behold now you see this this contrast and this mixture between two things that are going on at the same time. God can multitask after these things, I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle, which I believe is the one that 's in heaven because the one on earth was a copy. Of the testimony in heaven was open and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So five through eight is gives us four out of four is the preparation for the bold judgments, which we will see in two Sundays. Okay. Um, You know, when you read the scripture, Old and New Testament, God has a structure in heaven, right? John in Revelation four sees the sea of glass. He sees the living creatures. He sees the angels. You know, the apostle Paul sees a bunch of really neat stuff. I just say this. When you go into God's house, he's cut some really awesome furniture. So the stuff, that we're going to be like, whoa, wow. I mean, we're going to be marveling at God, but we're going to be, I'm going to be like, can I, I want to walk over that sea of glass mingled with fire. I got to check that out. And the colors that emanate from the throne, it's just such cool stuff. All right, where was I? <laughs> so I, I have a, a childlike imagination when it comes to the things of God. So four is the prep for the, for the bowl judgments. Uh, so you've got what's going on in heaven. You have what's going on in earth. Uh, you see this this smoke, which is, is not probably a great translation from the glory of God and from his power. If you look at Exodus 40 and Moses pretty much listening to God and making the tabernacle, which was a movable um, place that, that God could be worshipped at. When he's done, the, the smoke of God or, or the, the presence of God fills it, and Moses can't even stand there. He has to go away. The glory is, of God is so powerful. It's tangible. It's palpable. In Second Chronicles 7, the temple, when Solomon de- dedicates the temple, we see God's power, presence, and glory come to the earth again, and what do we see? It's, I love reading that. The priests, are, they're booking. <laughs> it just starts to fill with this presence, and all the priests who are supposed to be ministering to there, when God's presence fills the temple, they run out. They run out the door. Uh, And it's a good thing. You know, God doesn't do anything to hurt them. But as sinful flesh, we can't stand in the presence of God's glory. That's how just amazing he is. So that's an exciting thing. And I'm going to tell you that for those that uh, when the the church calls, when the Lord calls the church home and those that are left behind and they start reading this, I think this is really going to encourage them. So this book, a lot of what's in this book, is also for those that are left behind, right? That, that fought God and, and resisted him and resisted him. And now they see all the things happening that their Christian friends and relatives told them about. And now their noses are in the book. They're like, wow, this is serious. How do I navigate these seven years, right? So there's the victory. Uh, you got the judgment. And I just would encourage you from what I said before, if you're going through something difficult, don't give up. Don't give up. And I love the the anticipation, you know, the hope, the expectation of the things that we're going to experience in heaven, that we just have to hold on to it now when we go through the difficult times. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We're encouraged to not lose heart. And the message this morning is the reality of the two paths. This is where the, the, the wheat and the tares, they grow up and they finally get separated. You see the tribulation saints in heaven. And then the church that preceded the tribulation saints, they're already in heaven and they're, they're rejoicing. But then you see those that took the wrong path and refused to get onto the right path, the judgment that comes. So a lot of things in this book aren't going to be pretty. But Jesus said in John 3:17. Jesus said about himself that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But again, Jesus did all the heavy lifting. He died on the cross. Folks, it's up to us. Are you going to turn to Christ or are you just going to stay on that wrong path because it feels good? So Jesus said, I didn't even come into the earth to condemn it. But eventually judgment has to come. Jesus came as a lifeline on a sinking ship 2,000 years ago to throw us a line. To, to get us to the, you know, the lifeboat and the life preserver, which is himself. Eternal life or eternal death is in the power of every person on the earth. Second Peter 3, 9, it says that his desire, the Lord's desire is that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But again, we have to do it. We have to come to repentance. We have to change directions. We have to see that we're on the wrong path. It could be through a preacher. It could be through reading the Bible. It could be through an evangelist. And we come to that conclusion, you know what? I'm not on the right path. And we turn, repentance is to turn, turn towards the living God, trust in what Jesus said, and be saved. The most tragic thing in this world is when people hear a message like this and they think to themselves, I've got plenty of time. I'm 25." I'm 35. I'm 18. Is there any guarantees in life? You know, as a police officer, I I saw loss of life with young people, and those memories will stay with me forever. As a pastor, I buried people that could have been my kids, and those memories will stay with me, not forever. Don't get me wrong. When we go to heaven, that whole understanding of pain and, and Difficulty, it changes. You don't have that. You don't carry with that burden for eternity. So life happens, folks. And I just want to encourage you if you don't know the Lord, this is the message for you. I can't see what you're thinking of. God hasn't given humans the ability to read minds, but He knows what you're thinking of. And He's trying to nudge you through this word. He's trying to get you to come to Christ and have a relationship with Him, but He's not going to force you to do that. Let's pray.